Living a life of intention starts within. Dora and I are excited to help you find the path to co-mindfulness living through our co-mindfulness masterclass. Our seven co-mindfulness principles will take you on a remarkable path towards health and happiness. For more information and to sign up for the masterclass, visit comindfulnessproject.com. This episode of Health Gig is part of the Evolution series powered by Paragon. We are working with Paragon Performance Evolution to bring you a special series of incredible speakers which have been hand-selected from their network to be our guests on Health Gig. Paragon works with companies to bring in authors and thought leaders who can help implement hands-on programs which focus on transformation, integration, and greater awareness. They blend the best of modern science, human behavior, and timeless wisdom into all of their programs, which is why we are so supportive of the work they are doing in this world. We are thrilled to be collaborating with Paragon Performance Evolution for this very special series and so happy to bring these conversations to you. People are yearning for information, having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. How did a guy from Oklahoma who was afraid of the ocean end up being CEO of the World Surf League. In today's podcast with Eric Logan, you will learn how that happened and much more. Eric takes us from his days as Chuck the Duck, a radio mascot at a country music station, to vice president of programming and broadcast operations for XM Satellite Radio, to president of the Oprah Winfrey Network and executive vice president of Harpo Studios to the World Surf League's president of content, media, and studios, to his current position there as CEO. His journey has been remarkable, but it's his inward journey that caught our attention. So please welcome Eric to HealthGig. Well, I am thrilled to be here. Thank you, Doro, and thank you, Patricia. Hello. Thanks for being here. We're so excited about our conversation today. We have so much we want to talk to you about, but we want to start by asking you about yourself and growing up in Oklahoma. And then all of a sudden, how did you become a media executive from there? So gosh, the journey starts back in the Stone Ages of the early 70s. I was raised in a very middle-class family in Oklahoma City and went to public schools and fell in love with stage performing. And that love kind of came through the Boy Scouts. The Boy Scouts really were an important part of my childhood upbringing. I worked along and got my eagle, and that provided me this opportunity to do public speaking and stand up in front of people. And long story short, my mother was a receptionist at a radio station in Oklahoma City called KXY. And along around 15 years old, I get a phone call from her going into the summer that said, hey, listen, they've got some part-time work for you if you want to do it. And I'm like, oh, this would be great. I thought I was going to be on the air. It was a mascot. I was Chuck the Duck. (laughs) And I was like, this was pretty cool because I was making like five bucks an hour. So this would have been in the mid 80s. So I think minimum wage in Oklahoma at the time was like three something. So I was making more than minimum wage. And I was like, when it's working, it's kind of fun. So I did that. And then my dad, coincidentally, went to work for the competing country station called KEBC. And they had a mascot that was a coyote. And he comes home from work one day and says, hey, they want to make you Cody the Coyote and you can leave the duck. And I said, well, what does the Coyote pay? And the Coyote paid 10 bucks an hour. And I'm like, well, this working stuff's pretty easy. I just got to keep getting jobs and make more money. So, you know, it was interesting. I started getting in and around this medium of radio. And I really didn't know I had a love for broadcasting or media at all. 
And what wound up happening was being close to it and being inside the radio stations. It afforded me an opportunity to lean into it. And I got on the air. And because I had that confidence from being a scout and being a leader and speaking, being on the radio in a room by myself talking to a microphone was no big deal. So that's kind of how the journey began. So how did you go from being the mascots to running Oprah's companies? First of all, I will say the story of how I sort of got there to me is very special, I think, and a good example that I try to use when I talk to people about, you just don't know what the universe holds for you. You know, you just have to sort of trust your journey. I certainly, in a million years, never imagined when I was the mascot at the radio station, and then I became a disc jockey, and then I became the station manager, sort of was just working my way up, you know, in Oklahoma City, that I ever be like, I'm going to go move to Chicago and run the most successful television show in, in the world and work for Oprah. Never enters your consciousness. But what was really interesting in that process was what I was actually doing is I was sort of chasing this need in radio to validate myself. And what I mean by that was, it was like, I proved that I could basically get out of the coyote outfit and run the station. And in Oklahoma City, it was like market 51. And this would have been in the early 90s before the boom of satellite radio really took off. I was very focused on trying to, as a young executive, to A, get out of Oklahoma and really try to figure out how to make a career out of this. And I realized also that you made more money the bigger the market were. Because the bigger the market was, the more advertising revenue was available to be spent and the audiences were bigger. It's just a simple economic equation that you knew. And I got a really incredible break when I was 23 to move to Seattle, Washington. And when I moved to Seattle, Washington, I took over a radio station there and we flipped it from a rock and roll station to a country station. And we beat the number two station relatively quickly and we tied the number one station. And from there, from market 51 to market 13, it sort of unlocked a lot of doors. A lot of people got to know my name in the country music world where I really was. And what happened was that I got a chance to go to San Francisco. Kind of a funny story. I was 24 when I got the job and they wanted me to start in February of the following year, which I would have been 25. And I said, can I start on January 6th? Because my birthday is the 7th. And I go, yeah, but you're not going to live here. I go, I know, but I'm willing to do it because I wanted to be the youngest country programmer in a major market in the history of country radio at 24. But, you know, I did that. And then from there, I started having more success, just becoming the station manager, being able to lead people and have them understand the dynamics of business. And what's interesting about it is it was all self-taught because again, I didn't go to college and I really leaned on a lot of the virtues and values of being a scout, you know, leadership, listening to people, reaching out, not to be afraid of help, and all those sort of virtues that the scouting program gave me as a young man. And that journey then took me to Tampa Bay. I was a station manager for a group of stations. From Tampa Bay, I had a brief shot to go to Chicago, and I was the head of all-country radio programming now for CBS for a couple of years. That happened over the summer of 2002. And then I moved to New York to be the corporate programmer for CBS. And then I took a little detour and went and was the president of a smaller radio station group out of New York for a while. And this is about the time when everybody was talking about satellite radio was coming on and how nobody was going to pay for satellite radio. It's like, it's a disaster. You know, and I was saying this, by the way, this is another great lesson of the story. It's like, who would ever pay for radio? It's free. It's this, that. 
so I was all these like anti-satellite radio kicks. Well, as the universe often does, my phone rings and it's a headhunter saying, hey, XM would like to have you come down to D.C. and talk to him about an opportunity. And I was like, you're out of your mind. The place is going to be bankrupt. It's a disaster. So I eventually took the opportunity to do that. And I drove down from New York City to Washington, D.C. And I was listening to the country station because that was pretty much what I knew. Like, oh, let's just see what you guys are all about. I had to rent a car because I had a hard Manhattan. And I rented a car and I bought the radio and put the little antenna on top of it. And I'm driving to Washington, D.C. Long around Philadelphia, which is about a 90-minute drive-ish, depending upon traffic and whatnot. I realized two things. Number one, I haven't had to change the station. And number two, I hadn't heard a commercial. By the time I got to Baltimore, I knew the terrestrial marketplace had a real problem. And I was like, oh my God, I've been completely naive. My ego had been blocking me seeing this. So I walked into this facility and I was gobsmacked by how beautiful it was. It was state-of-the-art. I had been traveling all across the country. And the CEO at the time was a dear friend of mine named Hugh Pinero. And Hugh said, Eric, I know you're tired of traveling in small markets. And when you need to go travel to go see your radio stations, all you have to do is walk down the hall. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. So I left running Citadel and became the head of content and operations for XM Satellite Radio. This is where the Oprah intersection comes and we'll pause. One of my duties up there as the head of content was to try to expand our portfolio. And doing that, I had a thesis that we needed to attract more females. Our service was very male. They had Howard Stern on Sirius. We had Opie and Anthony and then there's football. But there really wasn't an offering for women. And I knew because one of the secrets of programming country radio, most people may not know this, is if you program for the women, the men will come. If you program for the men, no women will listen. And so that was an old axiom in country radio. And so I was like, we have to do that for the service. So it was like one of the lessons I learned. And I was in a boardroom and they said, well, what's your strategy? I go, well, I'm going to call Oprah Winfrey and see if she wants to do a deal. And everybody in the boardroom literally laughed out loud. They were just <laughs> like, ah, like, do you know her? And just like that. I mean, and I said to him, I go, well, are you laughing at me or telling me I can't? They're like, oh, no, listen, kid. They kept calling me kid. So I got a little PO'd, right? So I go down to my office and your younger listeners won't understand it, but two of you will. I dialed 1-312-555-1212, which if you don't know what that is, it's information in the city. Asked for Harpo, asked for Oprah Winfrey, got to her assistant, left a message. And I was like, okay, no, no one's ever going to call back. About two and a half, three months later, her president, Tim Bennett, calls me back and said, hey, I'm so sorry. It's taken so long time to return a phone call. What is it? And we just started having a discussion that led to a chance meeting with some mutual friends. She came by the facility and we did a deal, a three-year deal, where we put Oprah and Friends Radio on XM Satellite Radio, which predated OWN, the cable network. And a year into that, she called me up after we had done content together. And she said, you know, she basically tried to hire me. I turned her down one time. I flew to Chicago. I turned her down again. And then at a certain point, I'm like, I can't say no three times. So I better take the job. And then I wound up moving to Chicago. And that's how I found Oprah. And those two jobs you turned down, was that the job that you eventually took with Oprah? So here's what's so great about this story. So she wanted me to come leave XM Satellite Radio on the original conversation to run her one channel. And I was running about 230 channels at this point in time because XM was so big. And it was going through a merger with Sirius at the time. So I said, no. I go, that's just too small. Okay. 
So then I get a phone call that says, you need to come to Chicago to meet her. So I get to Chicago. I fly up to meet her. And I don't know what she wants to talk about. And then her president, Tim Bennett, the same guy, was just like, okay, so Oprah's going to talk to you about the job. I go, well, Tim, I've already turned that job down. He goes, oh, yeah. And so it's almost like you forgot to tell her or something. And so we have this like extraordinarily awkward meeting in her office where she's thinking that I'm coming in to run that one channel. And I'm like literally in her office in Chicago. And I'm like, uh, she's like, you're not doing this. I go, no, I'm not doing this. And she said, why? And so I explained to her, I go, well, you're one channel. This is a huge network. But I'm a media guy. I went through the whole stuff. And she goes, well, what would you do if you were running that? And I go, well, I said, listen, I'm happy to help you. You know, so I did the whole like collaborate. So I do all that and we have a great discussion. And she said, you're not taking the job. I said, no, ma'am, I am not. She goes, okay, okay, thank you. I go, you're more than welcome. We'll talk soon. So I get up, I leave her office. I walk across the street to another building. And I was walking into another building where the radio studio was. At this point in time, their CFO guy, Doug Patterson, comes by, taps me on the shoulder and goes, hey, the boss wants to see you before you leave. And I'm like, what? <laughs> now I'm like freaked out. And so I walk back across the street to the studio, go into her office. And it was a moment in my career I'll never forget. You know, she was sitting you know, at her desk and she said, okay, let me get this right. So I'm talking to you about peanuts. And I'm like, okay. And XM is about like apples. So it's like apples and peanuts. So she draws the analogy that she understands now that that job's much bigger. And this one that she was offering me is much smaller. And she goes, so what if I offered you to be the executive vice president of Harco? And I said, uh, what's that? I mean, literally, I mean, I didn't know what to say. I mean, I, I was a complete moron. She said, what do you mean? What's that? I go, oh, I mean, what's Harpo? She goes, I'm Harpo. She goes, Harpo is me. Harpo is this. Harpo is the show. Harpo is Dr. Phil. Harpo is me. She goes through the other stuff. And I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and then she goes, what do you think about that? And I said, well, I think we're bypassed apples and we're onto a whole fruit salad now. And that became she and I's little private thing about fruit salad. She's shared that story a few times in a couple of little speeches she did on my behalf about when I left the room that she immediately was like, where's he going? Get him back in here. And that started a 10-year partnership with her. I worked for her 10 years. So we're hearing you use a lot of language like the universe, trusting the journey, letting go of my ego. At what point did you start sort of becoming this person that was sort of aware? It was very late. When I was with Oprah, and obviously you can't be that close to the show and her and everything that's happening in the company and have it not help frame your thinking. I would tell you that the single greatest gift I got from those 10 years of Harpo was helping me understand through a framework and a languaging that makes me a better person through looking at things holistically from a universal point of view to life balance to understanding why I may be resisting certain things and being very honest about the fact that we are not perfect. We are really imperfect, you know, and there's challenges and what are the lessons with everything that we're getting and how are we seeing these lessons and how are we taking them in? That is all 10 years of being there. That's what that is. And it's changed how I run my company today. I run professional surfing from a place of intention now. But I would tell you, I learned a lot of like confidence and leadership and did a lot of my gut through most of my career. And now I look back and understand what was actually happening. I was a bit in a flow state. You know, I would just sort of kind of understand it. And I was chasing that feeling 
and I was doing a good job intuitively. However, why? I have no idea. It was just, I would visualize myself. Yeah, I'm going to be the top. I'd visualize it and then make it happen. But again, the languaging and framework that I can talk about it today is a direct result of working with her. Would you say Oprah was your biggest mentor in life? And how is she as a boss? You know, listen, she knows how to bring out the best in everyone, for sure. She brought out the best in me. It made me a better person than I ever could have imagined, for sure. As a boss perspective, here's what I always say. I always say, it's like, look, imagine how great she could be as a boss. Just imagine she would be the best boss in the world and take it up by a factor of two or three. And that's who she was. She always did things that you never expected. And she always knew how to be present and she always knew how to lead and she always knew how to set vision. And, you know, I was very, very fortunate. You know, I became president alongside Sherry for those years at the Oprah show. And then Sherry went and started her own thing when we actually pivoted to own a few years later. You know, when she trusted Sherry and I both with her companies, that's pretty rarefied air. That's some sacred ground. And, you know, you developed a great trust with one another in doing that. I actually think my greatest teachers right now are my children. Gabby Reese, who's a good friend of mine, who's married to Laird Hamilton, who's a big wave surfer. You guys probably know both of them or heard of both of them. You know, Gabby talks about it a lot, you know, and really opened my eyes to let your children be the teachers. You know, we have conversations and they ask questions. And, you know, I was raised a bit in the Midwest of sort of like, don't talk back to your parents. It was very dogmatic. It was like this, 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 this. That's not where we are today as a society, I don't think. So I listen to my kids, you know, and they're extraordinarily eyes wide open. They're more red than you think. And so I think my children are my greatest teachers. Oprah, without a doubt, shaped my life more in a 10-year span than probably any non-family member that I could think of, you know, outside of my family. So when did surfing come into your life? And in our discussion with you a few weeks ago, you told us you had a lifelong fear of the ocean. So how did surfing appear in your life? So when we ended the Oprah Winfrey show on May 25th, 2011, that was the final show. And it wasn't too long after that, that she brought me into her office and we knew that we had a problem. So OWN had launched the cable network on January 1st, 2011, about five months before the end of the Oprah show. And the network really never took its root. That's a whole other podcast as to how we actually corrected and fixed the network and why it was what it was. But she realized that she had a leadership problem at home. And she brought me and Sherry into her office shortly after the show was over and said to both of us that we have to lean in and fix home. And that was the point in time she said, Eric, you're going to go move to L.A. Sherry, you'll stay in Chicago and oversee the production side. Eric, you go to L.A. and go fix the cable network and you guys run these companies together. That started my journey out to Los Angeles. And we came to LA, bought a house in Manhattan Beach. And Manhattan Beach, our house is like five blocks from the ocean. Now, again, go back in time to Chuck the Duck, landlocked kid, Oklahoma. It's sort of like I would not even go into a lake if I couldn't see like my feet. It's like if I can't see the bottom, I'm not going in. And so my wife at the time, Erin, bought me a wetsuit when I was 41 for my 41st birthday as a kind of a joke. I was sort of like, hey, we're out and you should go be with all the cool guys. So I put the wetsuit on. I put it on backwards, of course, like most people do. The zipper went in the back, not the front. So it's a great picture. So I just put the wetsuit on and just went and walked into the ocean. Now, 
in the January, February timeframe, the water is super cold. It's like 59 degrees. And it was so bizarre because my feet were ice cold. The rest of my body was sort of warm. And, you know, you get those anxiety blankets, you know, put those blankets around you. Like, and so all of a sudden, you've got this anxiety during this wetsuit. You're like, oh, this is okay. I feel a little bit safe. It kind of felt like a suit of armor. And I then started like boogie boarding, which if you don't know what boogie boarding is, these are the small foam things that the kids that are like seven years old ride all the time in the shore pound. So I'm like, let me go try that. So I started having fun, you know, at 41, acting like a seven-year-old, actually playing with seven-year-olds, which got some really interesting <laughs> looks on the beach from the parents, by the way. And they're like, what is this? <laughs> and what happened was, was then I got a surfboard and I started doing it and I was going every day. And a really interesting thing happened. You know, it just became a passion, like overnight. It ignited something in me. And all of a sudden, the thoughts of the fears of the ocean, everything that was happening was just out the window because I was so focused on surfing and catching that feeling. And one day I said to Oprah, I said, hey, listen, I'm going to take some time off. I'm going to fly to Fiji. She goes, oh, where are you going? I go, I'm going to this little island in the Motu. What are you doing? She goes, I'm surfing. She goes, you're doing what? I mean, it was sort of like, what are you doing? So she's like, okay, you go. So we go and I come back and I have a really, really gnarly wipeout and almost drowned. And I wasn't prepared for the size of the waves. So I'm coming back and telling her. And then all of our conversations would sort of drift into, well, tell me about this and tell me about this. And she was like fascinated because what she said to me a few years later was, she said, I watched you have literally a spiritual awakening through surfing. So Oprah refers to it as my church. And she refers to the ocean to me as my sanctuary. And so much so, I will still get random texts from her. She'll see something in the news or whatever. And she goes, how was church this morning? And so the spiritual connection of everything about it that happened out on the ocean really sort of was the first time I'd ever had that alchemy of me, the spirituality awakening, woke peace, Patricia's we're talking about, and not a sanctuary, but something. And that's really about what it is. To some people, it's yoga. Some people, it's golf. Some people, it's flying. And everybody has their sanctuary that they find. I found mine in the ocean. And now you're heading the world surf league. It's just amazing how everything came together for you. It's a really amazing story. And it was truly divine. There was one night I was actually sitting right here where I'm sitting and my phone rings and I knew it was Oprah. She was actually traveling internationally and it was a satellite phone. And I was like, oh, well, there's a problem. So I wake up and of course, the first answer when you call and wake somebody up in the middle of the night, they always go, hey, did I wake you up? Yeah. And I was like, no, I'm right awake. It's 2.30. I'm great. What's up? And she said, she was like, well, what's that name of that island that you go to all the time? I go, oh, it's Namotu. She goes, no, that's not it. And I go, uh, da, 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 no, Tavaru? She goes, yeah, that's it. I said, okay. It was sort of bizarre. And then she goes, there's some really cool surfers that I need to introduce you to that are on this boat. Because she was on a huge private yacht in the Mediterranean. And I was like, okay, cool. So that kind of goes away. And a day or two later, I get this random email. You know, it's like those emails you get from like alpha tree friend at gmail.com. You're like, you have no idea who it is, right? They're like these really bizarre emails. And it's like, Oprah said we should connect you guys. I'm like, cool. And I'm trying to figure out who it is. And I'm convinced it's Kelly Slater. I mean, who else is on a boat with Oprah besides Kelly Slater? And I'm going, it can't be Laird because she knows I know Laird. It's like, so it's got to be Kelly. Okay, cool. So Going back and forth, what surfboard are you? I mean, just two guys talking about surf, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then it was like, I need to figure out who this person is. So I emailed back and I'd be like, oh, so great. Hey, listen, I got to kick out. I came up with some terrible excuse. And it's sort of like, I got to give this work on a company. Oprah mentioned you did some stuff with surfing. And then he said, 
it was great. I still have the, I still have this email, by the way. It was great. He said, I do do things with surfing. My name is Dirk Ziff. I own the World Surf League. And I was like, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> right. And then so I sent it to Oprah and her reply to me was price. She goes, I told you it was a good hookup. I'm like, are you kidding me? So that led to a relationship with Dirk. Now, Dirk Ziff and his wife, Natasha, and an ownership group owns the World Surf League. And the World Surf League, for your listeners, if they don't know what it is, it's effectively the professional sports league for surfing globally. It's the same analogy that you would have for NFL or MLB or MLS for soccer or baseball or anything else. But we put on all the events. We crown the world champions every year for professional surfing. And we're based in Santa Monica, California. And it started a great relationship. I was on the advisory board, got to meet the executives. And lo and behold, about two years later, I get a phone call from the then CEO at the time who said to me, hey, would you ever consider coming over and creating a studio and making just surf content? And I was so intrigued with the idea of taking all these years of media and my now newfound love of passion. I'm like, man, this does kind of feel like a once in a lifetime moment to truly marry these two things together. And we wound up putting the deal together. And I was like, okay. And then I had to go tell her. Then I had to tell her. So I walked in her office, sat down, and we're at OWN in LA. And I said to her, I said, hey, it's time. And she was like, it's time? I go, it's time. She goes, it's time. And then I told her about it. And she was extraordinarily happy for me, extraordinarily happy for me and very proud. You know, and then she kept saying, and she still does. She goes, I have no idea how you manifested that, how you took everything that you've done and manifested this career. Then I go there. And then after I'm there for about a year, I become CEO. And I've only been CEO since January of this year. So that's kind of how it all happened. I mean, it really is a dream for people to marry their passion with their career. And you've done it. And it's truly amazing. Well, you know what? It's interesting, Dora. It's like, I haven't really talked about this part a lot, but there's been more than one time that I felt like I blew it, that it probably wasn't a good idea. And it's super stressful because what was really hard for me to sort of get clear in my head, and I think I'm better now, but I still have moments where it's pretty, pretty stressful. When I was running own, I'm in a black wetsuit and I'm surfing out here in Manhattan Beach. Nobody knows that I'm running Oprah's company. They're like, who cares? I'm a bit of the face of professional surfing. And so my sanctuary, which was everything and beautiful, I had a degree of anonymity when I was out there. I don't anymore. And, you know, I'd be ridiculed because there's this natural tension in our sport of the establishment. The locals don't want to make it corporate. And I'm the corporate guy, which I'm used to that role. But it really blurred the lines of that. And I really had to do a lot of like soul searching of like, man, is this really the right thing for me? Is it the right thing for my career? Is it the right thing for me personally? Because I feel like I'm losing a bit of myself out there. It's a constant struggle. And I have found a couple of different places I can go and be with groups of people who just let me be me and they don't want to talk to me about the sport. But it's inevitable when I travel, people paddle up and they'll be like, oh, Elo, can I ask you a question? And you're like, I just have to be okay with it. And I'm actually okay with it. And I look at it now as a privilege. So it's a privilege to do it. And I'm not going to do it forever. And I don't want to look back and say, boy, I wish I was more grateful. Dora and I had so much fun researching you, watching the videos on the website. We were just mesmerized. The beauty and the power of the waves is just unimaginable. So what can we expect from you and from the league in terms of content? Well, here is the thing. 
you know, what's so amazing is everybody's like, oh, congratulations, you're the CEO. I go, I became CEO and we entered a global <laughs> pandemic in like five <laughs> Yeah. Be much more clear about what you're asking the universe to bring you because if you leave some details out, it's going to yeah. bring you a pandemic. <laughs> they fill it in. So listen, I mean, we're really excited. All guns are going that we're going to get the tour stood up hopefully in December. We're working with our Hawaii partners right now to try to do that. It's really challenging. You know, our professional tour is comprised of 2,500 surfers. Our championship tour, which is our top tier surfers, about over 50, and they have eight different citizenships. And we travel to seven different countries. So logistically, trying to move our tour in and out of countries is horribly complex. And so the amount of immigration attorneys and I-9s and visas and working visas, everything that we've had to do amid COVID protocols and local health things has been extraordinary. But I feel really good that we're going to be able to get our tour back up. We did not run basically at all in 2020. So we're going to get it back up for 21. We'll start at the end of this year, hopefully. And from there, the content that we're creating is pretty exciting, Patricia. We've got a show that we have shot that we will be airing on ABC called Ultimate Surfer. They haven't announced near a day yet, but it'll be some point in 2021. You know, we take seven up-and-coming men and women, and they compete for a shot on our tour. And it's like a reality-based competition show that we taped at Kelly Slater's Surf Ranch. And a lot of the other content that we do is really, if you think about it, kind of two different baskets. There's the professional side of things, which is the core of our sport, which is like surf competitions and winners and world champions. And then off to it is this entire universe around surfing that really gets into travel, that gets into lifestyle, that gets into fashion. And the thing about our community is that surf and surf global lifestyles really are drivers for so many things. It's destination. People aspire to be in it. It's hypnotic when you look at the waves. It's crazy when you watch it. It has a feeling when you have it. Fashion's been for decades informed by surf culture. Surf culture has been a leading indicator in that. And so us as a league have a really unique position to participate in all these different places. So a lot of the shows that we've been developing and building go explore what it means to go on a surf trip and what it means to travel to places that you've never seen. And your surfboard is your sort of ticket, if you will. I never would have gone to Fiji. I'm a perfect example. As I was saying earlier, it's like I go to Fiji, I've gone to Costa Rica, go to Nicaragua. I'm from Oklahoma. It's like, I just went to Dallas. That was like a big trip. Well, it is. It's like, if you are a golfer, you'll want to go to this golf course or that golf course. And like you're saying, this is just taking you to places you've maybe never even dreamed about, but you find a home when you're there. You do. And I think golf is a great analog for what we do because, you know, you may be in a foreign land and you may not be able to speak the language and, you know, but you're paired up with a foursome or out in the lineup in the surfer's case with people from other countries. The common language is your love for the sport. And I just find it to be such a beautiful bridge with people that I go into the ocean with all the time that are complete strangers in foreign lands. And, you know, how we speak to each other is by how we conduct ourselves in the lineup, how we have our etiquette, what we say, how we support one another on good waves. That becomes a language and it becomes a bond that is like in golfers. It's like how you play and how you participate on the course. So it's beautiful from that way. I find it more artistic when we sort of get out of the competition space. After COVID is behind us and you're full out there marketing the league, how do you plan to do it? Are you going to pull back from your days in the radio and country music and start with marketing to the women so the men will follow? Or what is your plan? We're actually going to market through equality. So one of the big initiatives of our sport is really equality and inclusion. It's a big pillar for us this year. 
And even in 2019, we were the first international sport that actually had equal prize money for men and women. So historically in our sport, the men would make a certain number and the women would make less. Our ownership group, back to the great leadership from Dirk and Natasha, they're like, you know, we have to be the standard for sports. And so the waves are 15 foot. It's the same wave. The men are out there and the women are out there. It should be equal prize money. And so we've done that. And in our upcoming tour, historically in past tours, we did not have the same number of events sometimes for men and women. In our upcoming tours, we're going to have equal number of events for men and women. We're going to have equal number of opportunities for women to win the world title as men. And so, you know, I think marketing, to your question, really is about equality, that all are welcome. From an inclusionary perspective, what's really exciting about our company is we have a really unique position because surfing is such a global sport that we can tell such great local stories. You know, we had a great surfer, two-time world champion, Tyler Wright do a silent protest in the Tweed Coast Pro, which was an exhibition event. And she took a knee in the middle of her heat while the heat was going on for 431 seconds. And she did that in honor of the 431 people who had died in police custody in Australia. And she did it with Black Lives Matter on the bottom of her surfboard. That has echoes of what our sport has done to support outcries of the apartheid in South Africa. We had protests that happened there. Obviously, Black Lives Matter, which is an incredible movement that we know has happened not only in the United States, but globally. And so our athletes have leaned into it. And we are providing our athletes the platforms to really talk about inclusion, where all voices, all genders, all views, all everything is welcome in our sport. But that's how we sort of view the sport. You know, you mentioned you're the equivalent of the NFL or the NHL or the whatever, but you're really not. You're the World Surf League, and you have this greater responsibility, really, not just to be part of the culture of America, but you're working on issues across the world. And it makes it challenging because, you know, at the end of the day, we have to synthesize and aggregate one product to push it out for now. And what's important to us today in the United States may be different than our friends and family in Brazil to Australia to what's happening in Portugal. And so from my perspective, I have to really think more holistically about, okay, how are we sort of navigating? And then how are we setting up the company to sort of participate into it? But to your point, Dora, the beautiful thing is because we are so global, it gives us an amazing opportunity to educate, to really take people who don't know what the stolen generation of Australia is for us to talk about it for people who in Brazil that may not really understand what Black Lives Matter means to the movement in the United States and globally, we have an opportunity to tell those stories. You know, what does equality look like in the ocean? You know, when women are surfing the same waves as men and they're rewarded economically, can that be something that sports and even young men and women look up to and be like, hey, listen, that feels like the right thing. And that's kind of how I'm trying to move the sport forward. Surfing certainly has changed your life. How have you seen surfing change the lives of younger people, maybe, or you took up surfing at 41? How does surfing change people's lives? I think it's a very individual answer. If you look, for example, at Brazil, one answer lies in Brazil is that surfing represents a way out of poverty. We have a two-time world champion, Gabriel Medina, who was the first Brazilian to win a world title. And since then, I think we've had Gabby Italo, Andre de Souza. We've had like five champions and three different people have come out of 
Brazil. And now the women are doing well. When Gabby and Italo and Felipe and our Brazilian surfers go home, they are little rock stars. It's like Neymar, who's the soccer player, and Gabriel Medina. They are these rock stars in Brazil. So that's, from a Brazilian point of view, that is one of the many views that the Brazilians could have about it. When you look at, like in Australia, for example, surfing is really the national pastime, much like baseball is for us, but it's surfing for them. And so the strength of the Australian surfers is unparalleled. I mean, we have over 21 of them on tour between the men and the women. And you know, Stephanie Gilmore is our eight-time world champion. The beautiful thing about surfing is, depending upon what you're searching for, I believe that surfing can fill that void. And for a lot of people, you don't know what it is. And you know, you think, I'll just try it. And all of a sudden, the alchemy of what happens, it sort of comes to you. The things about surfing, Dora, that I always say are that there's not many sports where you're actually riding raw energy. You're paddling into something that's moving. Like one of my favorite lessons I say from surfing is the biggest barrier to you surfing is your ego, which is you wind up catching a wave and you're like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And you think to yourself, all these different things that you're going to do. The reality is you're not going to do any of it unless the wave allows you to do it because the wave is going to do whatever it's going to do. It's moving. It's alive. And the more I stay in that space, the better I feel connected. Well, Eric, what's one last thought you'd like to leave with us and with our listeners? I'd sort of end with this, that I was not looking, to be really, really honest, to find this whole thesis of like, hey, you know, make your life's passion your work and your work your passion. And everybody talks about how you marry these two things together. It sort of found me is the best way I can say it. You just have to be open and into the sort of flow. And what I would say to how this all happened is trusting yourself and trusting the universe and things are happening as they were supposed to be. You know, Oprah would speak of divine order. Everything happens in divine order. And our job is to stay in flow of that divine order. And you know, I had the opportunity to do it and it was a courageous move. The number of people, when I said I was quitting, owned to go do this, they first were like, are you insane? It started there. And then it's like, where are you going? Because I never heard of it. And a lot of people, I don't want to say lack the courage, because I think everybody has the courage. They just need to believe in themselves so much that they can just sort of push themselves through. I'm just grateful that I had the courage to make the move when I did. And now I look back on it, and it's made me more courageous. And I look at the decisions in my career. It's like when I tell the stories about my career with the two of you, I look back on it. And each one of those moments were terrifying. Each one of those moments, I was like, oh my God, I can never do it. And I look back on it and it's a series of courage building moments to really take that step. So that's what I would impart to your listeners. That's my big lesson in my journey. Well, Eric, thank you so much. And You've inspired us all to embrace new things and to be fearless and courageous. And we just thank you for being with us. Thank you, guys. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. To learn more on how to live a co-mindfulness life, visit comindfulnessproject.com.